Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. What matters is not whether you're a dog or whether you are a woman. What matters is can you experience pain? And a dog can experience pain just as much as a man or a woman. So dogs and human beings, in a sense, are equal as animals that can experience pain. And that's all that matters. So that's like one of the arguments given on the other side for why all species should be treated equal. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today with me is Professor Christopher Kayser. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you here. So thank you for accepting our invitation. And I will just briefly introduce you to our audience. So Professor Christopher Kayser is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. He graduated from the Honors Program at Boston College and earned a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He's a Fulbright Scholar and did postdoctoral work as a Federal Chancellor Fellow at the University of Cologne, German, so he speaks, he actually speaks German. And then he was also a visiting fellow in the James Madison Program at Princeton University. He was appointed a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, a fellow of the Wharton Fair Institute, a winner of a Templeton Grant. Professor Kess has written more than a hundred scholarly articles. I don't know where he finds the time for that and book chapters and is award-winning author who wrote 15 books and I will not name them all year, but we invited him precisely to talk about his last one, which is Disputes in Bioethics, Abortion, Euthanasia and Other Controversies, published by Notre Dame Studies in Medical Ethics and Bioethics. And just by the title of this book, this is certainly a book that we can't not talk about. Professor Kayser, let me start by asking you this. Do you think that these are really the things we can't not talk about? Well, I think the issues that I'm writing about in this book are actually quite important to talk about, in part because they're, some of these at least are literally matters of life and death. And when we're going to make a decision that's so momentous, it seems to me at least that we should think carefully about that. And I think that in order to think carefully about something, we first need to talk about it with people because it's by talking about things that we can clarify our own thoughts and hopefully grow and gain greater insight about the things that we're talking about. True, but I read your book and I must admit it's it's sort of a complex book. It's not a book that maybe not everyone can read or am I wrong? Like, are these topics that everyone should read and know about or are these topics that are reserved and are, you know, for experts on the field? Well, the book was written, you might say, for other experts in the field. The book is basically taking on a number of contemporary issues and articles in bioethics. And so I'm trying to respond to other people in the field and to give a kind of professional critique. I do think the issues in general are issues of import and interest for really anyone. But yeah, I I do think this book is aimed more at scholars. It's aimed at, you know, it could be used in a college classroom, for example, But I would say I'd be surprised to find it in airports. 
That's very true. But at the same time, one of the main reasons to have you here is that we do believe that these issues are so important that we need to break them down and to offer simpler version for everyone, because these are issues that, as you said at the beginning, they are issues of life and death, and they touch on everyone's life and death, depending on what the choices or the policies in a particular state are on the issues that you touch upon. But to get to the issues that you touch upon, so I would say that the titles of your chapters, they all sound like titles for future podcasts episode that we could have here. But I would like to just, you know, focus on some of them. And so for the lay public, there is like, we can start from the very beginning. And you have one of the chapters is, is speciesism a form of prejudice? So could you tell us and our public, what is speciesism? Sure. So everyone's heard of racism, right? That's where you say that my race is better than other races. And everyone's heard of sexism. That's when you say your sex is better than other sexes. And speciesism is the claim that my species, namely human, is better than other species. The idea behind speciesism is that we should not put humanity ahead of dogs or cats or other kinds of animals. And my view is that even though racism is wrong and sexism is wrong, that speciesism is in fact not wrong. That is to say, I believe that human beings are distinctive and special, and therefore that all human beings share an inherent dignity that gives them a higher value than dogs or cats or rodents or any other kind of animal. So the basic thing that I argue in the book is that all human beings should be treated with special respect. And I don't think that's true of dogs and cats and such. Yeah, which sounds obvious if we state it like that. But the reason you have a book which is also directed at experts, as we said at the beginning, is that that sounds like that's not really obvious in the scholarship, you know, among scholars right now. So can you tell us what is the argument made on the other side? Like, how is it even possible that what you're stating, which sounds obvious, is not obvious anymore? Yeah, so there's a few arguments made. So one of them would be that we can't move from is to ought. So the idea would be just because there is a biological difference, say, between human beings and dogs, that biological difference is not enough to justify an ethical difference. So, for instance, one of the most foremost advocates of this idea is Peter Singer from Princeton University. So he would say, look, what matters is not whether you're a dog or whether you are a woman. What matters is, can you experience pain? And a dog can experience pain just as much as a man or a woman. So dogs and human beings, in a sense, are equal as animals that can experience pain. And that's all that matters. So that's like one of the arguments given on the other side for why all species should be treated equal. And also, you know, you mentioned dogs and cats, which might touch on people's pets and their sensitivity, but that would apply also to an ant or a fly, like whatever animal feels pain. There's no yeah, that's real right. reason. Yeah. Yeah, it would apply to a rat or a or or a worm or any other any any creature, rat or wasp or whatever that could experience suffering would be equal in its basic value to say a human being on that view. Yeah, and we will let our audience think what they think about it. I would say that then you address other very relevant topics in, in the book. So you address abortion, you address assisted reproduction and euthanasia. Which one, if I may ask, worries you the most? Well, hmm, which one worries me the most? I'm not sure I have a fixed view on that. I think, say, abortion and euthanasia both worry me very much and for the same reason that I think 
Both of them involve the intentional killing of innocent human beings. And on my view, all human beings, including the very young, very old, the very strong, the very weak, all human beings deserve to be treated with a certain basic respect. This idea is often put forward as the idea of human rights. Right? The idea of human rights is that every single human being deserves this kind of basic respect. And if you think about what we deserve most of all, it would be the right to live. That is to say, the duty of other people not to intentionally kill us. So I'm really concerned you know, about both those issues. And so I, there are certain things about abortion that concern me more, certain things about euthanasia that concern me more, but I'm not sure I'd be able to say, you know, well, one is really trumps the other, as it were. You use the word right. So let me get to a question that I had for you, because one of the chapters of your book that I appreciated a lot, the title is, Do Children Have a Right to Be Loved? So first I would say, is it the case or not? And then I would ask you, possibly because I'm a lawyer, is the word right the best one to use? Yeah, so we should clarify kind of what is meant by a right. So the first distinction is between a moral right and a legal right. So, you know, some things are morally right to do or morally wrong to do, but the law doesn't really deal with them. So for instance, I would say it would be morally wrong for me to be rude to my mother. But should that be a law? Should I get arrested if I call her names or something? Well, I would say no. I mean, it's rude and I shouldn't do it. I'd say it's morally wrong for me to do that, but I shouldn't be hauled away in cuffs. On the other hand, there's legal rights. And legal rights are having to do with what we, what we may do without governmental interference. So think of, say, the legal right to free speech. What that means is that we should be able to have a conversation. And even if we criticize the president or the Congress or the mayor or whatever, we shouldn't be arrested simply for, say, criticizing the government. So we have a legal right to free speech. So when we talk about the right of a child to be loved, that could be understood in a legal sense or a moral sense. I would say that arguably it, it covers both. What I mean is, morally speaking, parents have a serious duty and responsibility to their own kids, at least when they're little. It's different if the kid's 30 or something. But when a child is little, you know, one, two, three, four years old, the child is totally vulnerable. The child is totally needy, and the parents have a very serious responsibility to provide what that child needs to flourish. And one of the things the child needs to flourish is love. In other words, if you just fed a child and never, you know, picked the child up, never, you know, spoke nicely to the child, just kind of threw food at the child or something, that child would actually die. So a failure to properly love a child is, legally speaking, child abuse. We have a serious obligation to provide for children, and failure to do that legally speaking is child abuse. So, if I understand and correctly, I we also have a serious, sorry. So, if I understand correctly, it's more than what the word "right" as the other phase of the duty of parents. That's right. Yeah. So, what, the one way to think of it is rights and duties correspond with each other. If I claim a right to liberty, what that means is other people have a duty not to take away my freedom. Right. If I claim a right to property, that means other people have the duty not to steal from me. Or if you claim a right to live, what that means is other people have a duty not to intentionally kill you. So rights and duties kind of go together. And in some cases, your right, say, is someone else's responsibility either not to do something to you, not to kill you, or in some cases, to provide something for you. So I would say that parents have a serious duty to provide for their vulnerable, young, immature children. And another way to put that would be children have a right that their parents provide them with the things they need to flourish. And I would say part of what a young child needs to flourish is to have love. 
from their parents. In other words, if a parent merely gave them food and you know did not provide them any love at all, that would be very seriously damaging to the child, I think. But you also say something very nice to for if we are listening to this, to what you're saying from the parents' perspective, you also have a chapter of your book where you describe how children contribute to the happiness of their own parents. So could you tell us more about that? Sure, sure. So I think that children really do help their parents to flourish in a variety of ways. And I can talk about a number of different things, but I want to focus on Aristotle's understanding of friendship. So I would say in a good marriage, the spouses are friends with each other. And Aristotle at least thought that the best kind of friendship was a friendship of character, where both people had good moral character. Now, how do you gain a good moral character? Well, Aristotle thought that was through doing repeatedly acts that are good. So if you have children, what happens? Well, if you're a good father or a good mother, what you do is you help your kid. And you don't do this like once or twice. You do it every day. Like you feed the child, change the baby's diapers, make sure the child is warm enough. You do all these actions over and over and over and over again. And the more you do those good, kind, loving, patient actions, the more you build up in yourself a good, kind, loving character. And if both people are doing this, what they're doing is growing in virtue. And Aristotle at least thought that a friendship where both people were like that, both people had good character, they were loving, kind, generous, respectful people, that that relationship is going to be better as a result of both of their characters getting better. So having kids doesn't guarantee that you grow in character. But having kids is, I would say, a very uh, normal and very optimal way to have the opportunity, at least, to grow in character. Because almost everyone loves their own kids, and almost everyone, therefore, is prompted to do very many kind, loving, generous acts, and therefore transform themselves and hopefully their relationship into more kind and more loving and more generous relationships. Yeah, being the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture and believing that the family is at the, the very basic unity of society and without that we cannot go anywhere, I would just say, you know, that what, what you say is absolutely in tune with the mission of, of the Institute and the things we, we try to defend in scholarly research. Back to some of the more difficult parts, the controversial one. You've written extensively on abortion. And if I may, I would also recommend to our public not only this latest publication, but also your previous abortion rights, where you actually dialogue with a pro-choice scholar. Now, my question here would be, you have a dialogue in that book. Do you think that that dialogue is possible in our daily lives? I do. I definitely do. I had a roommate in college that we roomed together for two different years. And then one year he was next door to me. And we had very different views about a lot of issues, including abortion. And so I got very accustomed to talking to people that disagree with me about this issue and other issues. And this person, my roommate, was a great guy. And he was the best man in my wedding and I was the best man in his wedding. And we're still friends today. And I think that when you dialogue about issues, it's important to remember that sometimes people disagree and their disagreement is not because they're evil. It's not because they're totally ignorant and stupid. Sometimes at least people disagree about issues and they simply have looked at the evidence and they've come to a different decision. Now, if you can dialogue with someone in friendship, I think that actually opens the door to greater insight. Because if we're discussing an issue and I think of you as the devil and you think of me as Hitler, was well, it very hard for you to listen to what I have to say? And it's maybe very hard for me to listen to you and hear what you say. But if we're going to gain greater insight, it seems to me both of us have to be open to the possibility that we might be mistaken or 
both of us have to be open to the possibility of realizing that we could grow and learn something new. So when I dialogue with people, I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to really listen to them and to try to see, okay, well, what is this person saying? Maybe there's something true here. Maybe I can learn something from the person I'm talking to. You know, if on the other hand, you're talking to someone, you think this person, I can learn nothing from them. They're totally idiotic, you know, Hitler incarnate. Well, I wonder what's the point of even talking to someone like that? I mean, if you really think they're that bad, you know, why even say anything? Another chapter of your book, the title struck me because I thought it was about something. It was about something different. So the title was, is it better never to have been born? And there was a question. And so that sounded to me like the question that all nihilists are asking themselves right now, like in a Nietzschean perspective. But then, no, when I read the chapter, I discovered that it comes from a rather original take on why Christians should support abortion. Could you tell us more about that? Sure, sure. So I was looking there at an article that makes a claim that Christians who are pro-life are inconsistent. And the basic idea is that if you're Christian, you think that ultimately human beings end up in heaven or hell. And what happens in the case of abortion is you have a human being who dies before they can do any sins at all. And therefore, the idea is all those human beings would go straight to heaven. So if you're a Christian, you should not condemn abortion but rather you should celebrate it. You should say, this is great evangelization. Look at all these human beings that are going straight to heaven. This is a wonderful thing. And you have and not so, made it up, this argument. You actually found it in them. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. No, it was someone else. His name's Dan Thomas, who wrote a whole article basically defending this view. And so, so yeah, it's not my, I didn't just make it up. And so in that chapter, what I try to do is critique this argument and to say why Christians who are pro-life are not inconsistent. And basically, there's a number of things I think wrong with the argument that is put forward. And one of the most basic things is this, that a fundamental Christian principle is that we cannot do evil so that good may come of it. That is to say, the Christian view is that it is never okay, for instance, to rape someone. It's never okay to, you know, commit idolatry. It's never okay to intentionally kill an innocent person even if you have a very good motive, right? Now, in fact, do abortionists really have the motive of sending you know, these human beings to heaven? I, I really doubt it. But even if they did, that still would not justify the action because we ought not to do evil so that good may come of it, including the evil of intentionally killing someone. So basically, I don't think that argument really works for that reason and also for some other reasons that I explore in that chapter. Yeah, and I would again invite our audience to read, I mean, just by what I said about these chapters and the things that you, Professor, have tried to argue against the arguments made is that, yes, it is a book for experts. Sometimes it gets complicated, but it also is a book that describes what the academia is actually publishing on these issues. And it can be it can open a lot of eyes of people that think, oh, there is nothing wrong you know, in not punishing women for abortion. Actually, the argument is, oh no, it's good to kill babies so they go to heaven. Or, and that's only one of the instances where we see the kind of argument. So I, I do agree with you that it's a book for experts and it's very good in a college class or you know, for experts in bioethics just to read and to have an update on the status of, of research and arguments on this field. But it's also very good for the lay public to realize 
what is the kind of vocabulary that is like what the issues boil down to. Now, I had a final question, although I would love to keep talking for much longer, but we hope to have you as a guest lecturer for uh, one night, at least next semester, COVID permitting or online, whatever uh, we will be able to do. But I wanted to ask you something as a professor. So you see students and I get guess that, you know, you talk about these issues now. My question is, do college students now understand? Do they care? Do they find the answers that they're looking for in, you know, reading the newspaper and following the news? Or is there something missing? Well, with my students, what I try to do is get them to think. So we'll read an article. It might be pro-choice. It might be pro-life. It might be somewhere in between. But we'll read an article and I'll try to summarize it for them. And then I ask them, to think carefully about it. My basic way of doing that is to say, you might agree with this perspective. You might disagree with this perspective. That's up to you. But what I want you to do is think about the very strongest reasons you can to critique the perspective we just talked about. Again, maybe you personally agree with it. That's fine. But I want you to think about it carefully and come up with the strongest reasons you can to critique it. So I give them some time to talk with each other And then I'll call on someone, you know, hey, Frank, what do you think? What's the best reason you can think of to reject the view we just talked about? And so Frank will put forward, you know, whatever view Frank has. And then basically what I try to do is question them about that. And I pretend that I have the view that we just talked about. And say, okay, you're rejecting this view, but, you know, the author of this view would probably say back to you this or that. So I basically try to get them to engage in a dialogue and a conversation. And then oftentimes a student will just say, well, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know. And they're unable to really go further. And so I'll bring others in the conversation, help them to try to move the conversation further. But I guess what I like to do is I feel like I'm being a good teacher when students realize they don't know something that they thought they knew. Mm. I'm right? sure you, and, um, yeah, I'm sure that happens a lot of times. Yeah. And this is a very, very old way of teaching. It goes way back to Socrates. Socrates would very often question someone who says, oh, I know exactly what piety is. And Socrates would be like, great, well, tell me, what do you think it is? And then basically, as the conversation went on, eventually it becomes clear the person who's so confident really didn't know what they were talking about. And so in a way, I try to do that in my own way with my students to help them to have a, a realization that things are more complicated maybe than they thought. Things are deeper than they thought. Maybe they still have to do some more reading and more thinking about these issues. And if I can do that, then I feel like I've done a good job that day as a professor. And as you said that, so... As a suggestion for the public, again, is since you said, you know, that dialogue is possible and listening is possible, do you think that we should have this same approach in our daily lives and like, you know, asking people go with a Socratic matters, like, what do you really mean by that? You know, give me a definition. Do you think that it's possible to do that in our daily lives? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you, partly it does depend on a kind of atmosphere that is conducive to that. So if you're at a political rally, and you're holding a sign, and somebody else is at a rally holding a sign, probably not much is going to happen in this context like that. But I think in the context where you can sit down with someone and have a cup of coffee and actually talk, and I think the question you raised right then is a great one. Well, what exactly do you mean by this? How do you define whatever it is they're talking about? Because sometimes I think people can seem to be talking about the same topic, but in fact, they're using terms in different ways, and they're really talking past each other. So part of what I think philosophy can help do is to try to clarify and to define key terms so that then you can have a real conversation and a real 
discussion about things rather than just talking past each other. Do you have any suggestion for our public to or things to read on how to follow, you know, what is happening? What should they be looking at? Well, I like to read books, obviously, and you've mentioned some of my books already, but I like to also follow some things online. So I, I know I enjoy reading a lot. The essays that I find on this website called Public Discourse it has a lot of just different essays. And it comes out, if I remember correctly, every third day. It's like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think. So that's something that if people haven't you know, been to that website or haven't heard of it, that might be something that'd be pretty interesting. The articles are relatively short, you know, so it's not going to overwhelm you. And they're written you know, a more general level, not just for scholars. So anyway, that might be something that people might find useful. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I would say that and listen to the podcast of the Austin Institute. What about that? <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> Did that work? Okay. Thank you, Professor Austin. Thank you to our audience. And if you like this episode, please share it on social media and among your friends. And remember to subscribe to our newsletter and to the podcast. And if you want to donate, we're, we're happy about that too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.